And Lord, I pray now that today you will shine that light of his light, of his life, shine that light of your love on each of us here today. Lord, I pray that in what we sing, in what we say, the conversations that we have, and the, the, the loving kindness that we show each other, Lord, I pray that your love will shine very brightly. Lord, bless us now, we pray, in the name of Jesus. Amen. I like to hear stories. I, I always, when I was a kid, I always had my, had my nose in a book. I think that was partly because I was short-sighted and no one had worked it out. And, and books were the only things I could see. But I used to love stories. And I, my imagination used to run wild. And I, and I still like stories. Um, there are all sorts of stories, aren't there? There are stories about, uh, about things that happened a long time ago. There are stories about things that happened quite recently. I, I, I heard a story several times this week at work about someone who was so busy, he was going from meeting to meeting, and he had to go and catch a train, and he wasn't sure whereabouts the train was, so he, he got his mobile phone out with a map on, and he was walking along the street, and do you know what happened to him? What do you think happened to him? He was so busy looking at his phone, he didn't walk into a lamppost, but he walked into a little chain that was going between two pillars, and he tripped up, and he banged his head. Now, a lot of people at my work have told that story. Now, why do you think they told that story? Do you think it was to have a laugh at the person? It was a bit. It was a bit. Um, but it was mainly so that other people wouldn't do it again. So that other people would learn, right, remember this. If you're walking down the street, don't look at your phone. Look around you and make sure that you know where you're walking. So the stories that they were told, we, we, we tell, are sometimes stories that help us to learn, to make us better, and to make sure that we don't have the same things happen to us. We are celebrating Christmas, and we're celebrating a lovely story about Jesus being born. And we don't just tell the story because it's a, a nice story. It is a nice story. But we don't just tell it because it's a nice story. We tell the story to remind us that God loves us. And he loved us, and he not, uh, not loved us, but still loves us so much that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. That's a story that we can remember at Christmas time. We can remember Jesus being born, and we can remember Jesus coming back and and giving us everlasting life. We're going to be taking a reading a bit later on, and I just want to read a few words from the a letter that one of Jesus' disciples wrote. Now, there are some stories that are made up, aren't there? If you read stories about dragons and stories about uh, 
about all those sorts of things. They're all they're all, they're all made up. Maybe I shouldn't say that, but some of them they're made up. But do you know what the story about Jesus was true? It was true, just like my friend who fell over and hurt his head. That was a true story. But this is a much better true story. And how do we know it's a true story? Because it was written down by people who'd actually seen it. So there's a verse at the beginning of John's epistle. It says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we've looked on, and our hands have touched. This we proclaim concerning the word of God, the word of life. The life appeared, we have seen it and testify to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard, so that you also may have fellowship with us, and our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. These aren't made-up stories. The stories about Christmas, they're not made up. They're true. Stories about Jesus are not made up. They're true. So you can have confidence that God loves you and that God wants you to be part of his family too. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at with our hands and, and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared. We've seen it and testify to it. And we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you that we have seen what we have seen and heard, so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. 
And he is the propitiation for our sins, and not ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may be sure that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Beloved, I am writing to you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. Do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that are in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eye and the pride in possessions is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away among with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that it might be plain that they are not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you and you all the knowledge. I write to you, not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, 
And because no lie is of the truth, who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made us, eternal life. I write these things to you because those who are trying to deceive you, but the anointing that you received from him abides in you. And you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything, and is true, and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. And if you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born in him. Thank you very much. John's writings are a, a real mixture, aren't they, of quite practical things, but also very deep concepts that we need to, to think very carefully about. And I know that at least one of the things that we read about in uh, in uh, John's epistle this morning, uh, uh, Tim is going to is going to pick up on. Uh, on which point, uh, I'm going to hand over to Tim, uh, and Tim's going to to lead us. Well, a very good morning, brothers and sisters. As you can see, I'm all ready for Christmas. If there's anyone to blame for this, it's Liz. She's looking bemused. You wanted me out of a tie? No tie. Christmas jumper. <laughs> Next summer, it might be flip-flops and a thong. Who knows? <laughs> Hang on. No. <laughs> Well, this morning, I want to think about the light of the world. And Martin has, completely unrelated to me, because we've not had a chance to talk, but he's almost given half my excitation already, which is absolutely fantastic, because what it means is that you're already prepared for what I'm going to say. And what I'm going to talk about is the light of the world. And I'm just going to think about about light and I bought a, a health and safety rated candle. I was, yeah, yeah, I thought of you, Simon. Here we are. Ta-da! Brilliant. I'm just going to put that up there, just, just to remind us of the light. How it lights up. A little tiny light will light up a huge room. It doesn't matter how dark it actually is. The light still lights. It can be visible from Yards and yards and yards away. Ah, oh, you might not be able to read with you. you might not be able to have clear vision, the same as sunlight, but the light is still there. 
There are one or two occasions where impenetrable darkness is mentioned in the Bible, where it doesn't matter how light someone might light, it makes no difference. And that is in Exodus, when the plague of darkness covered the land, the Egyptians had darkness that was impenetrable. It could be felt. And yet the children of Israel lit lamps in their houses. So it appears that the Egyptians, it didn't make any difference if they lit candles or lamps. It, it, they could, it could, the darkness was impenetrable. And the second occasion is the darkness that filled the tabernacle when the glory of the Lord filled it. And it, that was a darkness and a, and a cloud that no one could enter. But of course, both those darknesses were made by God for a specific purpose. But I'd like to start, can we have the band please? I'd like to start by singing, O Little Town of Bethlehem. Did singing that hymn make you feel lifted up? The words are just absolutely brilliant. And yet the pictures tell a different story. They were all pictures of Bethlehem in the conflict that's been going on for 40 years. Facts tell. Stories sell, as Martin says. I suspect that he was an awful lot more like the pictures that when the Lord Jesus was born than when we think of the quiet, sterile, little picture, little, little town of Bethlehem that we think of. So I want to think about the darkness. While Christmas is a season of light, the truth is that the birth story of Jesus is filled with darkness. Anticipating the birth of the Christ child centuries before Mary was great with child, Isaiah wrote that the light that was coming into the world came to a people shrouded in darkness, gloom, anguish, and contempt were just some of the adjectives used to describe the darkness. So in order to understand the full revelation of the light which came into the world when Christ was born, we need to recognize the darkness into which our Christ was born. And I'm going to consider seven aspects of that darkness. Aspects that were not out of God's control, but rather he arranged so that Christ's light would radiate all the more brilliantly. So first of all, when Christ was born, the words of God had not been heard for 400 years. Malachi is the last book in the Old Testament, written about the 5th century BC. It concludes with the statement that God would send Elijah the prophet as a forerunner for the Messiah. But since that last pregnant statement, God had been silent. And everybody knew it. In the first book of Maccabees wrote, they, so they tore down the altar and they stored the stones in a convenient place on the temple hill until there should come a prophet to tell what to do with them. Without the words of God present among them, the people walked in spiritual darkness. Secondly, the people, the people of God, the children of Israel, the Israelites, 
were under the oppressive rule of the Roman army. This is evident, of course, in the birth story of Jesus. In Luke chapter 2, it records the census taken by Caesar Augustus. It was a blatant reminder of the people of Israel were owned by another nation. Likewise, Herod, a descendant of Edom, he wasn't a Jew, he was an Edomite. And they have been a persistent thorn in the side of the Israelites right from the early days, even to this day. Because we know the Edomites, they're still with us. We know them as Arabs, or Muslims, or the Palestinians. They're still there, rankling away, that thorn in the side of the Israelites. And they ruled in Jerusalem. Long gone were the days of the divinic kingdom. Much like today, soldiers walked the streets of Jerusalem. Only there were not 19-year-old Israelis with M16s. There were Roman guards called to police the city of David. In some ways, Israel had escaped an exile. No longer did they live in Babylon. But in many ways, they were exiles in their own country. Even their own temple had been built by a foreigner. Herod the Great was a descendant of a rival nation. Political darkness reigned. Thirdly, the nation of Israel was falling apart. There were four groups in Israel, and each one fought one against the other, trying to lead Israel. First of all, there was the Pharisees. And they resided in Jerusalem. They attempted to shape the religious life of Israel through all their traditions, through their writings, through their onerous obligations. Jesus had many runnings with these legalistic Jews because they led the Jews away from the proper religion of God. Secondly, there were the Sadducees. And they opposed the strict legalism of the Pharisees. But they only embraced the Mosaic law, the first five books of the Bible. They rejected the resurrection. They rejected beliefs in angels. But they still had an influential place in the temple and in the law courts. Thirdly, there were the Essenes, who lived in a commune near Quram. They were the scribes that, planned, that, that penned and preserved the Dead Sea Scrolls. And they lived an especially pure life. They devoted themselves to God and prayed for God's overthrow of Rome. Incidentally, it is from the Essenes, um, so it, it is incidentally, they also preached baptism. And I've often wondered how John the Baptist, where he got his tradition from. And it was the Essenes that practiced baptism. So what John the Baptist did was nothing out of the ordinary for that time in Israel. And fourthly, there were the Zealots. They were a band of brothers who did not pray for change, so much as sought violent means of overthrowing the Roman rule. And perhaps Judas Iscariot was one of these. The result of these four completely different, disparate group of people led to constant friction 
and only increased the oppressive rule of the Romans. Riots were common, tension was unceasing. Yes, darkness permeated Judaism. Fourthly, the birth of Jesus came through a virgin. All the pictures show Mary as a young girl and Joseph as an older man. Why? I've absolutely no idea because to me it sounds a bit gross as that. But try thinking of them as two frightened teenagers. And to me, I think that's a lot more likely. Now in our day, we celebrate Mary as an example of devotion and faith. We send Christmas cards with scenes of them in a stable, a bit like this, and sing songs of praising them. But it was not so then. Matthew 1 records that Joseph, who was a righteous man, one who loved Mary, sought to divorce her quietly. Why? Well, because of the scandal of it all. Mary's child would grow up ridiculed as the son of an unchaste woman. Yes, the virgin birth was not a celebrated event in ancient Israel. Darkness surrounded it. Fifth, the census was, in, in, uh, was a considerable imposition. Living in Nazareth, Mary and Joseph lived more than a hundred miles north of Bethlehem, yet there was no way round it. They were forced by legal constraint to make the arduous trip without a paved motorway or even a road, a car, a suspension system or even a cushioned seat. The teenage couple travelled they were forced to walk over hills and through streams. While we celebrate the pilgrimage today with joyous festivity, this was a dark walk. Now there was no need for Joseph to take Mary with him, as only the head of the family actually had to register in the census. But probably Joseph feared for Mary and didn't want to leave her behind. So he took her with her despite the arduous journey. Sixth, the poverty of Mary and Joseph did not fit the royal son that they had. Not only were the conditions leading up to Christ's birth, so too was his birth. In Luke chapter 2 verse 7 it records, there was no place for them in the inn. Because I know no room in the inn. I think personally the inn uh, that was mentioned was not a kind of travel lodge or a, a premier inn type of um, inn or, or a hotel with rooms, but a kind of meaning a house with an animal shelter next to it. We see those upon the, in, the, in the Yorkshire Dales and on the Yorkshire Moors where they put the animals together with the, next door to the house so that the warmth of the, um, the animals permeates into the house. Um, but the stable and nativity story was probably because Bethlehem was filled up with travellers coming from afar, also to do with the census, obviously. 
But it might have been the case that Joseph, a carpenter by trade, did not have the means to pay for a room. Money talks, right? Still does. But it is clear that Joseph had no bargaining power. Mary and Joseph went to the stable where Jesus was born and laid in a manger without the family or hospitality even darkness surrounded that event. Seventh, Herod tried to kill Jesus. Poverty was not the only source of darkness. Persecution followed Jesus' birth so that he was constantly under threat. Matthew 2 records the details. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you found him, bring me word that I too may go and worship him. Then Herod, when he'd seen that he'd been tricked by the wise men, became furious. He sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old and under, according to the time that had been ascertained from the wise men. Now we know that there's a very good chance that the wise men weren't actually at the stable, that it was some time after that. That's a little bit semantic and doesn't matter so much, hence the two years, um, children being two years and under being killed. But the point is, nowhere in the history of the day is that recorded outside the Bible for that period. And yet it is viewed as fact. Why is that? Why can you kill hundreds, if not thousands of children under two and it not be recorded in the history of the day? Because Herod was guilty of many brutal acts including the killing of his wife, his brother-in-law, three of his sons, 300 military leaders, and many others. As recorded first by first-hand sources, contemporary sources, including Herod's friend and personal historian, Nicholas of Damascus, but they did not leave behind records of the massacre at that time. One reason has been put forward by historians is that Josephus, who was closely associated with Nicholas of Damascus, wrote for a Greco or Greco-Roman audience. And sadly, they would have had no concern whatsoever for infant deaths. That sounds harsh. Because 
apparently Greeks regularly practiced infanticide as a kind of birth control, particularly in Sparta. So why would the death of umpteen children matter to, uh, to their audience? Macrobius, who wrote in about AD 400, one of the last pagan writers in Rome, in his book Saturnalia wrote, When it was heard that as part of the slaughter of boys up to two years old, Herod, king of the Jews, had ordered his own son to be killed, Emperor Augustus remarked, this is a bit of humour, it is better to be Herod's pig than his son. This was a reference of how Herod, as being brought up a Jew, would not kill pigs, but had three of his own sons murdered. It's a strange world. Archaeologist and historian Gordon France wrote, Historical plausibility of this event happening is consistent with the character and actions of Herod the Great. Besides killing his enemies, he had no qualms in killing family members and friends as well. Herod would not have given a second thought about killing a handful of babies in a small obscure village south of Jerusalem in order to keep his throne secure for himself and his sons, even if one of the last dastardly deeds he committed before he died. In additionally, a historian Stuart Peroni deemed the killing wholly in keeping with all that we know of him. Wow, what a man. Herod was a despot. He destroyed, as well, all his family historical records. Just in case, just in case someone found something in his family tree that they could criticise him for, some skeleton in his cupboard, something that could question his rightfulness for the throne. Does that remind you of the exact opposite of someone we know? Matthew 1 verse 5 Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Rahab. Rahab the Canaanite. She wasn't even a Jew. She wasn't even the children of Israel. Rahab the liar. Rahab the harlot. And in verse 6, David, the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Well, the scandal of it all. God does not try to hide or deceive us. Jesus is what he is because he was a man of that line. Can any of us change our past? No, of course we can't. One thing is certain, we can't change our past but the past can change us. The good news of the great darkness. Darkness is everywhere in Christ's birth, which should not come to us as a surprise. When we think of the prophecies in the Old Testament and the conditions of the world, that the world of, in the world that God created, as John 1 says, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. The same came to for a witness 
to bear witness of that light, the light, that, sorry, that all men through him might believe. He was not that light, but he was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light, which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. Remembering that the light of Christ came into the darkness of the night gives us hope that God can still pour light into our hearts and shine light into our lives. No matter how dark it might be, no matter where the darkness comes from, God is the light who lightens everyone, who has come to take up residence in the lives of those who look to Christ. It was in this darkness that the New Testament starts. We know the list of Jesus' descendants, possibly abridged, but very powerful as it shows Jesus for what he was. Human, skeletons in his cupboard for sure, but written down for everyone to see. Herod, on the other hand, had destroyed not only his family, but also all records of his family tree. Into this situation, the light of the world was born. The light that removes darkness. Does it matter how dark it is when a little tiny match is lit? No. Does the light extinguish the dark? Sorry. Does the darkness extinguish the light? No. The dark disappears in the presence of light. Light extinguishes darkness, but darkness, no matter how big, cannot extinguish light. And into this world, the light that will fill the world, if you notice, not many lights, but the light. The light that represents the wholeness of God, who resides in light and splendor, and he who has seen him has seen the Father, the one who sent him. And so we come to remember now, the one who started the greatest movement in the history of the world, the movement that went against all Jewry, and yet fulfilled all the Old Testament. We remember now, this time in the upper room, that Jesus commanded that how we should do it. A few short hours before his final submission to his Father. I've heard it said that we should not do this part of the service like as at a funeral. And I'm guilty of that, I must confess. But we should do it as a celebration for his whole life. And so we come to it. Remembering as we do at this time of year. Remembering his birth. Always putting his father's will before his own. His physical death upon the cross. But far more than that. Remembering his resurrection on the third morning. And that is why we're here this morning.
to remember that wonderful and crucial fact. Thank you.